0: CHAPTER Three of The Greater Life and Work of Christ This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ray and Robison. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. CHAPTER Three, Part One Jehovah Christ in the Old Testament Age with the advent of man the work of christ changed creation gave place to providence christ now began that long course of varied experiences with man which was to continue thenceforward for ever he then identified himself with a race from which he had never been separated there is a change in the name applied to deity when man comes into view the name previous to this event is the general name god in christ's special dealing with man it is the lord god this is jehovah the name by which christ was to be known to his own people and in the special relationships he held to them jehovah of the old testament was christ the scriptural argument is briefly as follows jehovah was often seen while no man has seen god at any time jehovah was the god of abraham and the body of believers is one from abraham down and christ is the head of the church there are also distinct statements of scripture to this effect he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ the vision which jesus said isaiah saw of jehovah was himself the prophecy prepare ye the way of the lord jehovah was fulfilled for christ by his forerunner it was christ then who was so intimately connected with the old testament saints and known by them as jehovah yet this identity is closely veiled both in the old testament and in the new the above are about all the direct statements to this effect. The reason will be more fully considered hereafter. It may be stated here briefly that he wished to be recognized by other means. The name Jehovah is one of divine origin. It occurs seven thousand times in the Bible. Its meaning is most comprehensive. It is an epitome of the whole nature, history, and work of Christ. It means first, the living one, in this expressing of the work of creation, There is also in it the idea of the ever-present one, and hence the character of Christ as providence. It means further, covenant-keeper, and in this we see the special relationship of Christ to the church. All that is meant by Jesus is in this older name. He was the saviour of the church always. It also looks into the future, for it is interpreted by himself as meaning, him who was, and is, and is to come, the Almighty by this heaven-born name first of all christ reveals himself to man dr newberry gives its origin as from parts of three words meaning he who was and is and is to come the title christ applies to himself in the apocalypse christ's dealings with men are seen to be with them as individuals families nations the church and the race as a whole adam represented each and all of these he was the head of the race by being first by divine appointment and by fitness the dealings of christ with him therefore are illustrative of his attitude toward the whole the relationship of jehovah to adam will be seen by recalling the purpose for which man was created he was intended for divine companionship the actual enjoyment of this is seen by a single hint in the record and they heard the voice of the lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day the whole expression is very suggestive the cool of the day the time for leisure and for friendly intercourse jehovah is walking looking and calling for his companion as if it was a common practice and the usual time to meet him it is a single glance but it reveals the daily intercourse of eden after the day's occupation is over the divine son seeks his human brother for loving intercourse it reminds us of the same christ on the mount of olives or in the home at bethany where loving friends listen to his words It was, for Christ, as well as the happy recipient of his confidence, a foretaste of the fellowship of eternity. He spoke of this time afterward in these words, My delight was with the sons of men. It was not for Christ the fellowship of an equal being, as was the fellowship with the Father, but it was with one who, like himself, was in the image of God, and therefore could hold intercourse with him, as no angel could. Each, although in a vastly different way, was a son of God each had a place in the great plan each looked forward to the realization of it as the consummation to be longed for adam was as yet not suited for the exalted privilege of fellowship eternally with god the father he was holy but untrained and therefore as to experience immature the first attitude therefore of christ towards man was that of instructor the great teacher began with his first pupil adam had this advantage over all his children in this beginning of his education in that he had all his faculties in primeval perfection. The volumes of which the great teacher instructed his first pupil were experience, nature, and revelation. They are the means of the instruction of his descendants from that day to this. They seem to have been given to him in the order named. The first lesson was obedience. The Lord put him in the garden to dress it and keep it. It is the first necessary lesson of youth— obedience is the law of the family the foundation of society and as will be seen one thing the whole story of man's experience is designed to teach this was joined to responsibility the keeping of the garden was his charge work was the first thing given to man it was not the penalty of sin nor is it a penalty at all it is the condition of life and always has been and always will be However high the creature rises in the scale of being or the plane of privilege in this world or any other, the law of his welfare will be work. When any living thing stops working, it begins to die. Work is the law of life. Christ gives his own example and that of his Father when he said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. But in neither case was it toil. For man that came later. A lesson in the book of nature is related. The birds and the animals were brought unto the man see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was the name thereof the inference is plain that there was a knowledge of the nature of these creatures on adam's part and this came either from previous instruction or experience or both it is a fair inference that christ did not stop with the creatures but that plants and the stars and all the many chapters of nature were opened and perused by this quickest scholar who ever lived it is inconceivable that with such a mind in its virgin power and with such a teacher there should have been any hesitation in desiring on the one hand or any unwillingness to impart on the other undoubtedly all the sciences in all their length and depth were unrolled before that ready learner with perfect wisdom as teacher and faultless faculties in the pupil learning advanced with such practice as is unknown to us we have been trying to regain a little of that which our great ancestor had in all his fullness it is certain that the first man was the greatest in natural ability and the best educated in all scientific truth that the world has ever had only by the same divine teacher can we regain his level of intellectual attainment it was especially by what we call revelation that christ instructed adam here was one capable of receiving the most exalted truths all his faculties were in divine perfection the body was unclogged by gross food or deadened drink Were stupefying lust. The mental powers were in all the strength in which they were created. He was in the image of God, in the closeness of this loving fellowship. Truth flowed unimpaired from mind to mind. The story of creation was then no doubt revealed to Adam, as we have it recorded in Genesis. The account is so orderly and so correct as compared with science in all particulars. It is withal so simple and so dignified that it bears all the marks of a divine hand we may feel sure that the first chapters of genesis were spoken by the same mouth as the last chapter of revelation christ was the alpha and the omega of scripture no doubt the future was also then made known to adam there was surely given to him also some intimation of his own place in the great plan of the ages and the responsibility which rested upon him as the leader of the great company who were to come but this was more than a state of training for adam it was one of probation also he was not yet fit by nature for the exalted place God designed for him. His nature is thus described by the Apostle. The first man is of the earth, earthly. Adam was not a spiritual being yet. The same change had to take place for Adam as for all his descendants since. His was not an immortal body. Dust thou art. Was true of him from his creation. It is interesting to consider what would have been the change which would have fitted Adam for his eternal state. The one thing we are sure— it would not have come by death. Death was no part of God's plan for man. He would probably have been translated as Enoch was, at the close of his appointed lifetime, probably a thousand years, which all afterward fell a little short. It is not necessary to suppose that he would have been on probation all that time. There was placed within his reach a means by which he could attain to the certainty of that happy state at any time. We often wonder what would have been the state of man on earth if sin had not entered. One thing is certain. Christ would have always been with man in visible and daily fellowship. Every blessing would have flowed from the presence of Christ on earth. Eden would long since have covered the earth. Millions of happy creatures would have been translated to heaven. The question is often asked, why did God permit the fall? Looking back as we do through the history of redemption, and having looked forward from the view we took from the eternal past, we see that the fall was foreseen from the beginning. Indeed, knowing human nature as we do, each one must feel that created beings left to their own choice will fall sooner or later. This only makes the question more difficult. Why, knowing this to be the certainty, or at least the possibility, did Christ create them, giving them free will, and expose them to temptation? He knew— it would result as it did. He foresaw that it would devastate Eden and plant earth with misery. From that awful issue, then opened, would flow a stream of evils, which would call for all his own mighty power to stay and overcome, and cause him shame, agony, and death. It is enough for the believer to know it was the will of God. God's will needs no defense. It is the standard of righteousness." This is to be fully demonstrated before all the universe, but now we must believe it to be so by faith. We are not left wholly in the dark, however, as to the purposes of God, and he invites our inquiry that we may see and learn and believe. We say, and in a sense correctly, that God does all things for his own glory. But to think of this glory apart from the welfare of the beings of his creation is not the scriptural idea of the glory of God. To say that God allowed man to fall, that he might in his recovery display his power and grace is to attribute to god purposes and actions which do not give him glory but the reverse for a father to allow a child to become sick and suffer in order that he may show his skill in the methods of his recovery is cruelty god did not and does not so seek glory nor is the first purpose of god the salvation of the lost had this been all he would have saved all by preventing the fall of any The only satisfaction to the mind, aside from the attitude of simple faith, is the discovery of a reason, or reasons, great enough to justify the permission of sin and suffering. While we cannot solve this greatest of questions, which has perplexed the wisest, we may inquire into it, and find some light upon it, or at least see that there can and must exist sufficient reasons, although to us unknown. Recalling the view taken of the eternal past, we discovered— That The distant view reveals the existence of a great plan in the mind of God for this world, and man in all ages and beings to come. Part of this plan, as we have seen, is the securing of a race of beings who shall be fit for use by him, in cooperation with him in his great eternal purposes. They are to be with God as children with their father. They are to live with Christ as a wife with her husband it is evident that there must be on both sides not only love but perfect confidence they must trust god fully and god must be able to fully trust them also they must have an established reliability which will stand true under any test and be absolutely devoted to god's interest and perfectly and whole-heartedly and gladly submissive to his will they must accept and believe without a shadow of doubt that god's will is best and right and be immovably fixed in this conviction this faith is the only ground from which can spring that love which is the bond of union god desires god could have made beings so from the first infallible and unchangeable but the character of such beings would be fixed by decree as is the character of brutes or rocks they would be holy because they could not be otherwise they would remain faithful to him by the same kind of law which keeps a stone in its place It is evident that such beings would not be suitable for the companionship of God and the high destiny he has in mind for them. God could have kept Adam in a state of unconscious and untempted innocence by allowing no means of temptation, but to give a being free will and then no possibility of alternative choice would be farcical. Such a state would be little different from the last described. None of these conditions, then, nor any other conceivable one, could be the permanent state of such beings as God created. We can see from all the past history of God's dealings with his people, as well as our own experience, what this character must be and how obtained. There is a character which can only be obtained by choice of right, struggle against sin and for right, and victory. Even Christ submitted to this process. He was tempted in all points as we are. He was made perfect by suffering. There is for us a necessity in this. Only by falling can we learn the value of standing. Only by sickness do we appreciate health. Only by failure do we learn the worth of success. For the production of such beings there must be capacity of choice, and opportunity of choosing. They must have an alternative choice. They must know both sides. And by turning from wrong to right, exercise purpose and will. There must follow this choice, a proof of it, by struggling against sin and victory over it. From this there comes a knowledge of the awful nature and effects of sin, and a detestation of it, and a full and hearty committal to right and God. They must learn by full and repeated trial that the will of God is best and right, and that for them there must be no other way. There must be more than this. They must be led by hope and see in God the future bright, with promise for them and all. Still further, they must be bound to God by love, and this from a deep sense of his goodness to them. There is to be one lesson such beings must once and for all learn. The evidence of God's faithfulness will be forever established. The severest temptation which besets the believer now is when, by distress or by apparent failure in answer to prayer, it seems as if God either did not hear or did not care for him. To doubt God's love, or at least his care, was the first, and has been the constant temptation of the Christian. Faith in God will always be the bond of the soul to God and the source of power. This will be established by the repeated trials and proofs of life. It will appear that there has been no neglect by God of the smallest of his creatures, that every prayer was answered, that with all our mistakes and sins all things work together for good to each believer. All this will give deep and immovable faith in God which cannot be shaken. There was more involved in the demonstration begun in Eden than the welfare of those who heard and acted, or even their race. This world is only the beginning of other ages and worlds. For them, as well as this, the test was made. This is expressly declared to be the purpose of this display of grace, to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers and the heavenly places might be made known through the Church the manifold wisdom of God, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no doubt that this purpose extends to the whole demonstration and for the benefit of all intelligences and ages to come. WE ARE COMPASSED ABOUT BY SO GREAT CLOUD OF witnessed, WHICH THINGS THE ANGELS DESIRE TO LOOK INTO. ALL THIS TELLS US THAT NOT UNTO OURSELVES, BUT TO COMING AGES, WE ARE LIVING AND UNFOLDING THE PURPOSES OF GOD. THE PURPOSE undoubtedly WAS TO SETTLE ETERNAL PROBLEMS. IN SOME WORLD, IF NOT IN THIS, IN SOME TIME, IF NOT AT THIS TIME, THE QUESTION WAS SURE TO ARISE WHETHER THE WILL OF GOD WAS BEST AND RIGHT people will think, and in eternity, harder than ever. Given the essentials of free moral beings, and questioning is inevitable. It is no harm to think or to question, provided one is open to the truth. The question would have to be met and settled. God could have met it by a display of power and might, and silenced all opposition. But that would not be an answer, but a suppression. It would not be worthy of the plan which God had before him, at seen in the ages to silence by authority is not to settle the question it would not answer the questions which would arise these beings would be under a continual reign of force which would be in no such state as god desired and as was best for the permanent happiness of all better this issue fully and fairly met now and the question's answered at once. Than that it should be left open—a constant danger, even threatening the universe—hanging like an avalanche over the future, to break forth perhaps when the universe was filled with holy, happy things, and instead of affecting one small world, to involve the universe in an overthrow compared with which the sin and sorrow and suffering of the earth and hell would be as the dust of the balance. There seems to have been but one way to permit an actual experience and demonstration of the whole question. To this end sin must be allowed to present itself in all its hideous nature and effects. Suffering must follow, and sorrow, deep and widespread, must be felt and endured. When this great experiment is over, every question will be for settled. Every alternative opposed to the will of God will have been tried on this earth. Every problem will have been solved. It will be apparent as the noonday sun to all intelligences that all has been passed through the crucible actual demonstration. The verdict from this will be that there is but one standard of right, but one way of happiness, but one way of holiness, and that is the will of God. The participants in this struggle are to be rewarded for their part in this sad stage of suffering by correspondingly and vastly increased benefits hereafter. They are to have the highest state in that kingdom to come. They are to be the closest to God in all the universe. They are to bear responsibility and power for which their long training has fitted them. The age of sin came at the very beginning of the long eternal plan. It was to be but a short era. What are a few thousand years in comparison with eternity? This earth is to be the only one stained by sin. It is but a small one, and rightly so chosen. It is large enough for the scene of sin and suffering. The record of this world's history is being kept above. It will possibly be to the church in heaven as the Bible is to us. To this record of the great demonstration, reference can be made on any debated question. For we may be sure that questions will arise even in eternity, and perhaps emergencies and crises come where the wisdom gathered from the past will be used. As we look back to the little land of Israel, so worlds may regard this little earth and its eventful history. TO THE EXECUTION OF THE GREAT PLAN THERE WAS FOR CHRIST ALSO A GREAT REWARD. CHRIST ALREADY HAD UNIVERSAL DOMINION AS CREATOR, BUT THIS IS A RULE BY RIGHT AND MIGHT. HE LONGED FOR THE RULE BY THE FREE ACQUIESCENCE OF GRATEFUL AND LOVING BEINGS. HE SEES IN THE FUTURE A SPHERE FAR GREATER THAN THE REIGN OF LAW. HE SEES THE REIGN OF LOVE. HE HAS THE CROWN OF CREATION AND PROVIDENCE. HE COVETS THE CROWN OF REDEMPTION he created a world of wondrous wisdom and beauty but he sees in the cross a way by which he can produce a creation which shall far transcend this in every element of greatness he will give an example of perfect obedience to the will of god he will by the cross show what the nature of sin is in such a way as to make it hideous he will thereby so show the awful penalty of transgression as to fill with holy fear of sin all beings for ever. He will, by his sacrifice, thereon show the love of God in his death, so as to hold by the bonds of love for ever those whom he has won from sin to God. There is to appear by reason of the presence of sin, and as its great antidote, that matchless attribute of God in Christ. Grace. Where sin abounded, grace did abound more exceedingly. In spite of the mighty influences sweeping... "'about poor, swaying man. "'He was to be irresistibly drawn away from all "'and to be fixed in the love of God. "'The tree of life was Adam's gospel. "'By eating of it, he could attain to the same condition "'as one who is in Christ now. "'The tree of life contained symbolically the gospel of Christ, "'as we have to-day, save that it was a bloodless gospel. "'It was for a sinless race, and therefore no shedding of blood was needed. "'Adam's salvation was to be had as ours is, the believers saved by faith in Christ. Faith implies repentance. The latter is a turning away from sin, and the former is a turning to Christ. There was before Adam the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. His salvation was to be by turning away from the one and turning to the other. In short, Adam was to be saved just as we all are, by repentance from sin and faith in Christ. There was no different covenant or salvation from that which has existed ever since for even with israel faith was the condition and obedience its test adam abraham israel the believer and the world have all the same gospel the strangest thing in all this narrative was the fact that adam did not eat of the tree of life this is apparent from the divine message at his expulsion from the garden and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree and eat and live for ever therefore the lord god sent him forth from the garden of eating we can scarcely understand how he should so neglect the greatest thing in the garden this indicates something wrong and deep-seated he doubtless felt secure in the possession of such abilities and privileges perhaps he did not feel his need of the means of grace and life under all was either pride in his own sufficiency or doubt as to the efficacy of the tree or unbelief in the certainty of the consequences THERE WAS PRIDE IN SOME FORM, DOUBTLESS. WHATEVER IT WAS, WE SEE CLEARLY THAT THE FALL WAS SO SUDDENLY SPRUNG, ATTACK FROM WITHOUT. IT WAS ACCORDING TO THE METHOD OF THE TEMPTER THAT THERE SHOULD BE A PREPARATION FOR TEMPTATION. THE READINESS WITH WHICH EVE AND ADAM YIELDED SHOWS A WEAKENING OF RESISTING POWER. AS TO THE TREE OF KNOWLEDGE OF GOOD AND EVIL, THERE WAS COMMANDED HIM, OF THE TREE OF KNOWLEDGE OF GOOD AND EVIL THOU SHALT NOT EAT OF IT, FOR IN THE DAY THOU EATEST OF IT THOU SHALT SURELY DIE. This called for simple obedience. It was a test of the main question as to the will of God. There was no explanation of why the knowledge of good and evil was not good for them. They were left with the will of God as their only guide, and expected to obey in simple faith. The fall began in heaven. Sin entered God's house before it invaded man's. Christ felt its sting before man felt its stab. All Scripture agrees that sin began with Satan— HE WAS AN ANGEL OF GREAT POWER AND GLORY. IT WAS DOUBTLESS SATAN WHO WAS MEANT IN THE FOLLOWING WORDS APPLIED TO ONE OF HIS EARTHLY AGENTS. THOU SEALEST UP THE SUM, FULL OF WISDOM, AND PERFECT IN BEAUTY. THOU WAST IN THE EDEN, THE GARDEN OF GOD. EVERY PRECIOUS STONE WAS THY COVERING. THOU WAST THE ANOINTED CHERUB THAT COVERETH, AND I SET THEE, SO THAT THOU WAST UPON THE HOLY MOUNTAIN OF GOD. THOU HAST WALKED UP AND DOWN IN THE MIDST OF THE STONES OF FIRE. Thou wast perfected in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till unrighteousness was found in thee. Thou hast sinned. Therefore I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I have destroyed thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. There is evidently more than a mere earthly prince meant here. There is a strange correspondence drawn in Scripture between the seen and unseen, as though the one was the counterpart of the other. The prince of the kingdom of Persia and the prince of Grecia are earthly princes, and are declared to be evil spirits also. So with the prince of Tyre, to whom this is applied. There seems to have been a close relationship between the glorious being who afterward became Satan, and his lord and master, Christ. Perhaps he was one of a heavenly apostleship who became a Judas, and fell by the same unholy coveting and pride. The story of that greater fall will be read by us when we read the Genesis of Heaven. Christ saw the rise of the evil thought in the heart of the first Judas as he did in the latter one, and no doubt gave him the repeated warnings he gave the latter. He has allowed liberty and even access to heaven. He sees the forming of the new world and race. Whether it was envy of Christ or coveting of lordship over his beautiful world, we do not know. But the evil purpose of effecting their ruin comes into his mind, and he proceeds to its execution. Satan's own sin and ruin long antedated this, we feel sure. The form Satan assumes is described as the serpent. The name is evidently taken from the subsequently degraded form and does not describe the original state of the creature whose personality he assumed or used and which the record intimates was far different the serpent shape being the punishment afterward visited upon him the whole impression left by the account is that it was a creature of a beautiful or at least attractive form and certainly not a repulsive thing such as the serpent now is it was more subtle than any other beast of the field which the lord god had made "'This is far above the reptile we call the serpent. "'It was a creature Eve was familiar with. "'She had no surprise at it's accosting her "'or having the power of speech. "'Perhaps it was the link between man and the lower animals. "'All these are now dumb, "'but there is no anatomical reason why they should be, "'and doubtless some of them had the power of speech. "'Whatever this creature was, it does not now exist, "'and was no doubt destroyed, perhaps perishing in the flood.' Satan does not approach Adam directly, but through his wife. Adam is a type of Christ. Even in his fall he represents the second Adam in many particulars. It is through and for the church Christ goes down into the valley of sin. Satan first attacks the faith of Eve. To undermine faith in God has ever been his purpose. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The insinuation is against God's goodness. Is he so unkind as to forbid to eat any tree of the garden? It is the temptation which assails every believer from that day to this, no doubt the goodness or wisdom of God in his dealings with ourselves. When we think prayer is not answered, or we do not get our share of the good things in life, or are hardly treated or forgotten by God, when suspicion of want of love in God enters the heart, enmity to God is not far off it was a direct meeting of the issue for which the whole history of man was initiated whether the will of god was best and right eve's reply of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat would have been the sufficient answer of a loyal friend of god the presence of discontent is plainly seen in the rest of the answer but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden god hath said ye shall not eat of it neither shall ye touch it lest ye die discontent is seen in the added words neither shall ye touch it. Unbelief is seen in the change of the direct threat of death into a peradventure, lest ye die. Neither Satan nor Eve uses the name of Jehovah, but the ordinary name for God. Here is the ignoring of Christ from hatred on Satan's part, and forgetfulness, or something worse on Eve's part. It was, all told, want of faith in Christ by which the first sinner fell. Then came the positive side of Satan's temptation ye shall not surely die for god doth know that in the day ye eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as god knowing good and evil in the former words satan assaults by insinuation as to god's goodness in this he directly denies the truth of god's word discontent is a certain precursor of and preparation for unbelief the rest of the account shows human nature as it was and is And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The threefold nature of man is appealed to in the threefold temptation, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. The spiritual course of the fall seems to have been first, pride in their state and superiority, second, discontent with her surroundings, third, coveting, fourth, unbelief in God's word, fifth, disobedience, sixth, shame and fear, seventh, deception. If the progress is continued, hatred of God ensues, and this is the satanic state. Adam's first part in the guilt of the fall is the fact that he heard and saw all and could have prevented all. He was with her. He doubly sinned by allowing one to fall who was committed to his keeping. After the sin, shame begins its work. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. There was a horrible jest in Satan's promise, Ye shall know good and evil. They did know it, as a child knows fire after it is burned. They realized it first in this. They knew that they were naked. Self-consciousness, the bane and malady of man, had come. It is the torment of humanity in its keener work it is conscience and in the end unspeakable remorse and agony the hour comes for the daily meeting with their loving gracious lord they hide themselves hitherto they had gladly come to meet him for the first time they shrink and hide and are silent christ knew all and foreknew also but yet the actual occurrence was a blow to the great heart of christ as is every sin of his people still This was the first of the bitter cup put to his lips to be drained to the dregs in Gethsemane. We must not, in the conception of the infinite nature of Christ, clothe him with impassiveness. Infinity is infinity of all right feelings. Christ felt in infinite degree all we would feel when a loved and trusted friend doubts and sins against us. The record is silent, and this silence is more eloquent than words he who wept over the unbelief of mary and martha at the grave of lazarus could not be impassive at the first manifestation of unbelief which brought sin and misery in his course with the change in man the attitude of christ toward man also changes he approaches the guilty pair not as the approving friend and teacher but with the reserve aspect of the judge he has full understanding of the nature of the act of sin which man has committed and full appreciation of the dreadful consequences of the apostasy. But he has infinite pity for the wretched couple who are coming slowly toward him in answer to his call. A gentle but searching question brings out the facts of the case in a faltering confession. Christ leaves them to their thoughts while he administers judgment upon the tempter. The wicked being is not to be allowed to rejoice over the condemnation of his victims, or be a witness to their shame. Satan's case is disposed of first. A curse is pronounced upon him. There is no saving clause for Satan. Even the creature is degraded who has been his medium. He is reduced to the level of the reptile, where he will do no more harm of that kind. The curse upon Satan is as follows. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The purpose of Satan is declared by Christ in the parable of the tares, sown among the good seed. Satan's purpose, evidently, was to mingle his own progeny among the people of God. It has been his one great plan ever since. The force of the curse is in the fact that Christ unmasks the purpose of Satan to mix his children among the people of God, and establishes a radical distinction between them in the enmity which shall ever exist between the two sides. There is irreconcilable antagonism between the flesh and the spirit, truth and error, the church and the world. This leads us to see the entrance into the world of a new order of beings who are averse to Christ and his people, and who shall war with them until the end. This double line has existed and shall exist until the final victory over sin and Satan. Christ now turns to his once happy, now wretched children— We can see that his tone, and no doubt his looks, also change. There is no trace of anger in the words, and we cannot believe there was in the voice. He is in the judge's place, but the heart is that of him who wept over Jerusalem as he pronounced its doom. The penalty threatened was, "'In the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die.' But that did not happen. Adam did not die that day, nor for many centuries after.' nor did he die spiritually, for we read that he was a son of God. The penalty visited upon them was very far from being a fulfillment of the threatened death. Eve is given an increase of the burden and pain of childbearing, and placed in subordination to her husband, and Adam is sent to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. We need to inquire why Christ did not visit upon them the penalty— In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Immediate execution of the penalty of death was the essence of this warning. There is a difference between man's sin and Satan's. Adam's sin differs from Satan's. Man showed shame, but we read of none, and had every evidence of there being none in Satan. Satan's sin had a self-hardening effect at once. This effect in man is gradual. Satan's sin brought no forgiveness. It was that spiritual sin for which Scripture tells us there is no forgiveness. Satan's sin was the summit of his wrongdoing. Adam's the beginning. In the worst state of man there may be rebellion and hatred of God, but envy and ambition is only possible to a being of Satan's high place. Man's sin is mainly self-destruction. Satan's is mainly destruction of others. Hence for man there is redemption, for Satan none. There is no direct disclosure in the record of the means of Adam's salvation for immediate death. For the time had not come for the revealing of the gospel of redemption. Yet there is some intimation of the gospel having been revealed to him. Christ closes his interview with a loving act of great significance. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife coats of skins and clothed them. Their bodies needed protection in the rough life of the outer jungle, through which they were now to hew their way. The sense of shame was seen also in every act and look. Christ did not send them out in shame and nakedness. Clothing is a badge of shame, and therefore guilt. They were not only humbled by the garb of the lower animals, but they were put on a level of exposure with them. As these animals had suffered and died, so were they to suffer and die. They were to share the lot of creation— Henceforth nature and man were one. They were to suffer together storm and heat and hunger, thirst, disease, and death. Nature was involved with them, and they were made to suffer with all creation. But something more than clothing and physical protection was needed. What was needed for man now and at once was a stay of proceedings, for the edict of death had gone out against him and hung suspended over him. Something or some one must intervene or death in all its forms must fall upon the guilty couple some one must appear and in his behalf present a sufficient plea for man's immunity from instant death this christ did he did what we well know he did and does for every one since who comes to him a confession of sin and acceptance of the plea he offers christ stepped into man's place He took upon himself the guilt of the first, as he did of all subsequent sins of all the race from that day to this. No doubt the animals slain were in sacrifice as symbols to man of the nature and salvation Christ obtained for him. The sacrificial idea is clearly presented here. The skins were no doubt those of the first of the long line of offerings slain for man. There is substitution in death of these for man. The animals were probably lambs. These were no doubt included in the reference to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They typified Christ, as did all the long line of sacrifices from that day on. Here the first and universal priest began his office. Development will no longer do for man. To develop a sinner is only to develop sin, and that, when it is developed, is death. Sin must be recognized and accounted for and punished this is the inviolable law of all right rule the very throne of god rests upon this idea of justice it is because redemption recognizes this primal law that it is so reasonable and safe all thinking persons must see that what is right is safe the competency of christ to take man's place is not questioned nor his right to do so the fact that he did so is stated in clear terms It was the first step on the path which led to the cross. That and every intervention of Christ was a forfeit Christ was pledged to redeem by the offering of himself at an appointed time. By this pledge, given and accepted by infinite justice and planned by infinite love, the doom of man was stayed. But on Christ rested the burden of the fulfillment and redemption of the pledge until he could by one offering once and for all fulfill and redeem all. Here, and not in the Prohibition, is seen Christ's covenant with Adam. It was a covenant of the redemption and not of condemnation. Grace was on the ground as soon as sin, and Christ's sheltering covenant extended over the first sinner. End of chapter 3, part 1